0: I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, David Remnick talks with Christina Ibarra and Alex Rivera, the directors of the new film, The Infiltrators. The film uses documentary footage and reenactments to tell the true story of two immigration activists who infiltrated an ice facility in Florida. In 2012, a man named Claudio Rojas was taken from his home in Florida by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Now, that was hardly unusual. He was one of more than 400,000 people detained that year. But what happened next was out of the ordinary, to say the least. Rojas's son contacted the National Immigrant Youth Alliance for help with his father's case. And two young activists with that group went on an undercover mission to infiltrate the Broward Transitional Center where Rojas was being held. They pretended to be newly arrived, undocumented immigrants, barely speaking English, and they got themselves arrested by ICE, deliberately. They wanted to find out exactly what was going on at the center and report it out to the world. And Rojas himself was eventually released from detention after leading a hunger strike there. Their story, those activists and Claudio Rojas, is told in a new film called The Infiltrators. Now, it's not exactly a documentary, it's a kind of quasi-documentary, and we'll explain that in a second. It showed recently at the Sundance Film Festival and in Austin at South by Southwest. I talked with the directors Christina Ibarra and Alex Rivera early in the morning after their screening in Austin last week. So, Alex, the two activists are named Viridiana Martinez and Marco Saavedra. These are, in a sense, the two heroes in this in this film. These are the people that Um, are activists and infiltrate these detention centers.
1: Who are they? Sure. So, Marco and Vidi are both folks that commonly might be referred to as dreamers, meaning they were brought to this country at a very young age. They were both brought from Mexico, uh, Marco from southern Mexico, from Oaxaca, and Vidi from northern Mexico, uh, from Monterrey. And they both ended up, um, their families ended up finding opportunity and staying in this country. And 20 years later, they're young adults in America, very Americanized, but without papers, without social security numbers, and um, they turned in their early twenties to activism, realizing that without a social security number, they couldn't get a job. They were living in fear of deportation. So this small group that Marco and Vidi joined said, you know, we're going to take big risks to push push for some kind of change. And they were kind of a splinter of this larger dreamer movement. They were the radical fringe, kind of the act up of immigration is maybe one way to sort of think about what they were doing.
0: The act up of immigration. So an interesting analogy of of all the groups that the anti-AIDS groups act up considered itself the most radical in some ways and the most attention getting. Has this group, the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, succeeded in getting the kind of attention that ACT UP did in its time?
1: I, I think so. The, the, the National Immigrant Youth Alliance was in this kind of heyday around 2012, and they were really the first group to do civil disobedience um, from the undocumented community. Again, so risking their deportation as a political protest, using their body not only to make a political statement, but to kind of create a crisis for the authorities.
2: So they came together and were looking for cases. They worked cases for a couple of years and really learned how to navigate the system. They learned so much about the, the way the immigration system works. And um, when they found out about this one particular case at uh, Broward Transitional Center, they saw that there was an opportunity here to, to do something bigger.
0: Meaning they br- they essentially make their way into these detention facilities. How did they get out? access to them, and what was the risk to themselves?
1: Sure. So for this particular action, they walked up to Border Patrol stations in Florida and essentially presented themselves. They kind of created a dialogue with the Border Patrol agent in which they seemed to accidentally disclose that they had crossed the border illegally and um, with the hope of being taken in. And, you know, it, it when they decided they wanted to get taken in by Border Patrol, it actually they discovered that it was kind of hard to get detained on purpose and so why was that well because um it's completely bizarre (laughs) and and the border patrol officials were like what is this why are you telling me this go away each of them had to attempt multiple times to to get detained but they were very determined to be detained and to go into this florida detention center
3: can i do for you um hi I'm looking for my cousin. My cousin? Why? Uh, we may think he that he's detained by the border patrol. Is he an illegal alien? Does he have papers to be here? No, he don't have papers.
0: Well, did did they feel that they had some level of protection?
1: At that moment in time, I mean, yes, to a degree, because they they each had been arrested in a civil disobedience before, sitting in the street, um, sitting in a politician's office. So they had gone through the system and been released. And so they had kind of done these tests where they, they believed that maybe because Obama was saying nice things about dreamers, even though they were getting deported, if they could do these actions in public and get in the news, maybe they could be safe. Maybe they could find some political power. And they had. And so when they turned themselves into Border Patrol at this moment, they had a theory, which was maybe we can get in to a detention center because we're undocumented, but maybe we can get out because we have some power in the media and we can make some noise from inside this detention center. So that was kind of the the escape hatch. But there was no DACA. There was no formal protection that
2: they had.
0: Christina, one of the detainees that you focus on is named Claudio Rojas. And how long had he been in the United States?
2: So uh, by the by the time um, that this this story is set, uh, Claudio Rojas has has at this point been in the country for about 15 years. He had been in detention um, for seven months. Um, He's a he's a father, an Argentinian father with two sons, and he's has never committed a crime.
0: Right. And the son contacted National Immigrant Youth Alliance, didn't he?
2: Right so Emiliano has contacted the National Immigrant Youth Alliance for support in trying to figure out how to get his father out of detention
0: and was he thinking that he would get Marco to go in and help, or was there a simpler motive behind his call?
2: So Emiliano didn't exactly know what to do. He had already exhausted all of the resources that he knew how. He had tried to get lawyers. So Emiliano kind of had reached the end of his rope. And it was almost like a a last resort. You know, he, he was online. He saw these activists who were willingly exposing their status. And he said, you know, and they were saying, we know how to stop deportations. And so Emiliano reaches out and asks, you know, how can you help me? What can I do? And through this relationship that developed, they slowly started to discover that the, Claudio was a natural organizer. Claudio was revealing these different cases inside that Nia found were cases that they knew how to work.
0: So how were Marco and Vidadiana, our essentially our heroes in this film, managing to get ICE to release detainees all the same?
1: So the infiltrators, when they're in there, they're giving information about how to get out, helping people file asylum claims, et cetera, things like that, basic things that can help get people out. So some of the people that they helped release was through that, um, saying, hey, you've, you've you've suffered violence in your home country, file for asylum. You, this other person, you're, you know, you fit this category, you could apply for bond. You, this other person, you're a dreamer. Let's put political pressure on the administration and get them out. So inside, they were almost like, Ad pro bono, you know, lawyers, d- defenders, um, educators, translators—those were the kinds of activities that they were doing inside detention.
0: Now, as filmmakers, you were faced with a, an enormous challenge. I, and I have to say, as a viewer of documentaries, I'm I'm not usually wild about recreations in documentaries, although we see it all the time. Here, it's a necessity, and you make a virtue of it. You really succeed. Because you have to film, quote unquote, inside the detention center where you can't get a camera. So tell me how you creatively um, face this challenge for your for your film.
2: You know, the, the infiltrators themselves are so creative in their tactics and, and the way that they organize and they work. And one of the things that I saw that really spoke to me was the way that they were taking all of the, the stories that they learned through this deportation defense work. And they were really learning how to embody them into this role, into a performance. Because when they were trying to get themselves detained, there was this, feeling of um, privilege that they carried um, themselves. They say they feel like they're, you know, they look and act like a border patrol agent might say is a typical American. And so how do you how do you then become someone else? How do you show this vulnerable immigrant? And the way they did that is they, they studied a role. They prepared the way that a, an actor prepares.
0: Alex, how did you go about recreating the Broward Transitional Facility? What did you use instead?
2: Sure. So
1: we, we filmed the recreations for the detention center in Southern California in a decommissioned mental facility called Lanterman in Pomona, California. And it's just very big, cold, uh, kind of oppressive, institutional setting. And then, um, but because we were kind of recreating this story and entering into this landscape of script and, and um reproduction. We were able to dialogue with the the subjects of the film, the protagonists as we call them, um, including Claudio Rojas himself. And so Claudio spent seven months in the detention center. And, and so he was on set with us during the filming, working with the art department, working with hair and makeup. He was working with all the different um team members to help make a kind of authentic reproduction. And um That was something that I think we both as filmmakers really loved was like kind of getting out of the subject-object relationship that is sort of the core of documentary and journalism and entering this kind of unknown realm where we were um, editing a documentary, but interweaving a kind of fiction or reproduction into it. And because of that scripting and reproduction process, we were able to dialogue with the folks who lived the story and say, does this look right? What do you think?
2: call from an at Browler Transitional Center. This call subject
3: recording at Mom, did you know they have solitary in here? Sure. You did?
1: And he didn't tell me this? Why? you scared? I'm not scared. Of course not. I just didn't know. Just don't get sent there. And also, we have
0: somebody coming by later. They're going to bring you some paperwork. Got to go, my love, Maria. OK, OK. Bye. Now, Christine and Alex, I think any viewer of this film is going to have human sympathy with the detainees. There's no question about it. But some people who are listening to our conversation might be thinking, well, it's awful, it's sad that these people are in this facility, but they broke the law.
1: And what do you say to that? Sure. I mean... uh, Everybody breaks laws every day. Who doesn't speed? Who, who doesn't? Um, uh, there's tons of uh, laws that get kind of bent and broken all the time. And so we, we also have a notion in this society that the society that the punishment should equal the crime. And what we have in this reality we're living in now are people being locked up. Families, children, being locked up for months and years for moving. Not for hurting anyone not for stabbing anyone, not for stealing, for for moving. Well, you say
0: moving, but they're not moving from Portland to Seattle. They're they're crossing a national border, and there are laws about that. What, in your view, what is the politics animating your view of this? What what do you think should be the proper uh, policy for this?
1: Sure. So for me, as an artist, I'm not a politician or a lawmaker. I'm a person interested in the human condition and questions that are ethical and moral. And for me, I know my, my dad moved to this country. He happened to come with a visa. I have other cousins who came without visas who are undocumented. But to me, the, there's something moral about this question of immigration. There needs to be a moral dimension to it. And to me, the moral dimension is that we live in a world in which the rich and powerful can move anywhere they want in the world. But the people who are working class, who have the biggest needs, are meant to be trapped behind walls, like and kind of managed their movement, managed like like kind of like animals or something. So for me, I, I I personally believe in a freedom of movement.
0: You believe in open borders. I
1: believe in a freedom of movement. Yeah, and I think,
0: what's the yeah. what's the difference?
1: Well, I it's uh, for me it's a linguistic difference that the freedom of movement highlights the moral core of this question, which is that. When people move out of necessity to be with their loved ones, to work, to me, they're expressing their freedom. And I personally, I wouldn't want to lock someone in a cage for doing that.
0: Now, Christina, Claudio Rojas was recently detained again during a standard check. Is this a normal process?
2: So uh, Claudio had been going to his regular immigration check-ins for seven years. And um, after this film... um, had its Sundance premiere and won awards. And a week before it was to have its Florida premiere, where Claudio was about to attend with his family and his friends from church, he was detained at his regular check-in. Now, what changed between the last time that he checked in and this time? The only difference that we see is that now he's known as someone who speaks out against the abuses inside the detention center. So... It's, this is this is becoming more of a, a a first first amendment battle where there's this retaliation against him for being an outspoken critic.
1: We're sort of living inside the film because the film tells the story of the campaign to get Claudio Rojas out, and we never imagined he'd be back in again exactly when the film is kind of coming out into the world. And um, we're doing everything. Um, that we can with our networks and with the visibility of the film to try to elevate Claudio's case and and get him out. We all believe that, you know, all of the 40,000 people in detention right now, the mothers, the children, the fathers, etc., they all should, we believe they should be free, Um, but we have to start with Claudio. If we can't get Claudio out, then our theory of change and um, sort of the, the theory of the movie, you know, doesn't hold The film
0: is an important and extraordinary film, The Infiltrators. Alex Rivera and Christina Ibarra, thank you. Mm.
2: Thanks, Thank you.
0: Now, we were able to speak with Claudio Rojas, who's being held at the Chrome Service Processing Center in Miami. Rojas has been told that he'll be deported at the end of this month, and he believes it's because of his involvement with The Infiltrators. Here's Rojas with The New Yorker's Camila Osorio.
4: Hola, Claudio. Hola, Camila. My name is Claudio Rojas.
3: Hi, Camila. This is Claudio Rojas.
4: Claudio, que gusto poder hablar. So glad we are able to talk. I'm sorry it has to be under these circumstances. Pues mira acá pensando. We wanted to talk to you because we wanted to know how have you been these past weeks, how you have felt, what's happened.
3: Well, since I've been here, I've been sick. I came in healthy, and I've been sick this whole time. So imagine how I feel. I'm not only separated from my family, but I'm here, sick. We're in a room that is supposedly for 80 people, but there's 160 people. All the air is contaminated, you know, with viruses, you see. Uh, So I caught something in my throat. And when I was in the other detention center, there were six of us sharing a room. Here, there's 160 of us sharing one room.
4: Um, Claudia, we also wanted to ask you, what happened? How were you detained? Can you give us more detail? Was it two weeks ago?
3: Two weeks ago, I presented myself for a routine check-in, very normal, a supervision visit. I was with my lawyer. We had a petition. My lawyer presented a petition. They made us wait four to five hours. At one point, suddenly, they opened a door on the side. They called us, they put me in, and they said, they told me, we have the order to detain me. So we were surprised, both me and my lawyer. My lawyer explained we had presented something, but they said, no, that they had to detain me. And there I was in shock. It was a routine checking visit.
4: A routine visit. I wanted to ask you about that. You had been going to those check-ins for how long? Since you were detained in 2012 and then released. How often did you go to see ICE?
3: The visits were once a year. But when the administration changed with the new administration that we have and zero-tolerance policy, things have changed a bit. They started scheduling visits every six months, and lately they were scheduling them every three months. That's how the visits worked. What I'm trying to say is, you know, for eight years, I presented myself for supervision visits. Why didn't they detain me before? Why are they detaining me just now when we're releasing a
4: movie? Right. Why now? That's what I wanted to ask you. If you think that because of this movie, this is a form of punishment coming from the administration...
3: Before, I would say, yes, I think so. But now I'm totally sure that this is a form of retribution because they're delaying everything my lawyer presents. They're delaying it. or rejecting it. But for example, they could give me a stay of removal, which means there would be no deportation until the case we're presenting gets resolved. However, they're not allowing me that. They rejected the stay of removal. And that's why I'm completely sure that this is reprisal against me, that they want to deport me no matter what.
4: I understand you're going to attend the screening of the movie at a festival in Miami?
3: I was waiting for that festival. I missed it when it was in Utah because I wasn't given permission to travel to Utah.
4: But I was looking forward
3: to seeing the film here in Miami with my family. So they took that dream away from me, the dream to see the movie with my family. And the biggest dream they're taking from me right now is to be with my grandchildren.
4: Did you like the movie?
3: I'd like to see it. I, I still have not seen it. I love the work that was done, but I haven't seen the movie. I, I want to see
4: it. So tell us more about the guards. In the movie, their attitude is very aggressive. We wanted to know if the attitude has changed, or how is it towards
3: you? Now, look, at that time, the guards were from the GEO company. Now the company's changed, we got a new company, I don't know how to describe the logo. But the attitude of the guards is the same, you know. They're always intimidating people, putting fear into them, like they're saying, we are superior, you are little.
4: Uh, listen, uh, one shouting
3: right now. Between screams and threats. <laughs> One time, an officer came, he was Hispanic, and he treated the detainees badly, because he wanted them to be silent. In a space for 80 people, there are 160 people, so the noise is going to double.
4: How can they demand silence? — any chance, do the guards know of your activism, or even the people there are at the detention center?
3: Well, the people who are here in the detention center, they do know about my activism because they saw me on TV, Channel 51. So when they see me, they know about the movie, the activism, and they come to me with questions. Claudio,
4: and hablando de questions, an important question. Do you have any idea if you're going to get deported at the end of the month or, or in the coming months or in the next few months?
3: Uh, That's what they're trying to fight, with the lawyer, with the judge, to ask immigration why I've been detained. But I haven't heard back, so to extend the date, they said March 30th, that they were not going to take any action against me before that date. So we're holding on to that date, and the lawyers are working fast, but... As I said, they're not working with us at all. They're rejecting every proposal. So I'm very worried that I will get deported on March 30th.
4: About that, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about that possibility, about what can happen at the end of the month?
3: I'm always expecting for a miracle to happen. And something might happen on my behalf. I trust the skills of the lawyers, the organizations that are fighting for me. There's a lot of people involved. In general, I don't like the news, but I have to accept it. As I tell you, I'm a fighter. I fight for what I believe, and I will continue fighting until the end. I'll use all the necessary resources to keep myself in this country.
4: When you say that, all the resources, do you still consider protest actions like the ones in the movie The Infiltrators? Exactly. I guess you cannot tell me which.
3: No, no. No, no, I'm going to use actions that maybe I, I'm not going to tell you over the
4: phone. Okay. Um. Have you communicated with your son Emiliano or with the National Immigrant Youth Alliance? I have to go.
3: They're they're kicking me out. Bueno, I have to
4: go. Claudio, muchísimas gracias por tu tiempo y cuídate mucho. Okay. Gracias. Muy
2: amable.
0: Claudio. Hasta luego. Claudio Rojas, speaking from ICE detention in Miami with the New Yorker's Camila Osorio, who also translated. A spokesman for ICE told us they couldn't comment on Rojas's case.